You're listening to Evidence-Based IHP, the podcast that draws connections from research to practice. Hey, Rachel, on a validated scale from one to 10, how excited are you for our first actual interview episode? I am basically at a 10. I am so excited right now. Same, me too, although we might be a biased sample in this case. (laughs) Before we queue up the interview, let's tell our listeners what's in store for them. All right. So this week's interview is with Justin Wong, a current resident in IHP's Physical Therapy Orthopedics Residency Program, and Lauren Rimmel, a recent graduate of the same program who is now a practicing physical therapist at Brigham and Women's Hospital. Throughout this episode, whenever you hear someone say PT, that's the abbreviation for physical therapy. Justin and Lauren were co-authors on a research project with some of our PT faculty entitled Navigating Without a Compass, How Culturally and Linguistically Diverse Students Persist in Higher Education. The team interviewed culturally and linguistically diverse students about their experiences as students in a graduate PT program. I saw them present at MGHIHP's Faculty Scholarship Day, and their study was so compelling, I invited them to be our very first guests. Listener, without further ado, here is our interview with Lauren and Justin. Stick around afterward for a bonus discussion. Hi, Lauren and Justin. Welcome to the Evidence-Based IHP podcast. Thank you so much for being here. I'd like to start off by having you introduce yourselves. Tell us a little bit about your background, um, how you're affiliated with IHP. Hey, yeah. Good being here. Good talking with you today. So my name is Justin. I'm currently one of the orthopedic residents uh, at the IHP's physical therapy program. My clinical appointment is at Spalding Framingham. A little bit about my background is that I um, graduated from Boston University's doctor physical therapy program in 2020. So last year, not too long ago, I immediately went into residency and yeah, it's been a blast since. I've been learning a ton and opened up tons of opportunity for me and this is one of them. Uh, Thank you for having me. It's so fun to be here on the other side of residency. So a little bit about me. My name is Lauren and I grew up in the suburban Boston area, but traveled quite a bit during my professional studies. So I did my undergraduate studies and my uh, doctor of physical therapy degree at Marquette University in Milwaukee. I was able to travel quite a bit during my undergraduate time and my student rotations, but ultimately ended back in Boston to do my orthopedic residency at the IHP. And I graduated uh, from residency in 2020 and then went from um, a clinical placement at MGH to my job at the Brigham in Chestnut Hill. And that's where I work today. Could you start off by talking a little bit about the study, what it entailed and what you were hoping to learn? I got on the project at the very beginning of my residency, and it's actually one of the things that drew me to the residency. Our PI, Keshri Naidu, will tell you that I had a lot of questions going into residency, and one of the main themes regarding my questions was, is there room for social justice in the residency program? Because that's something that I'm really passionate about and don't want to just leave that in as a student. I thought early on, how can I build that into my career? And Keshu was like, actually, it's really funny. Um, We have some research going on that I think you would be really interested in. And it's like, great, sign me up. Not knowing how nonlinear of a timeline research is sometimes. And so earlier on the residency timeline, I got involved with the project in phase one. And so this particular study is phase two, but I think it's important to spend some time talking about phase one because they are interconnected and really based on the findings of phase two are based off of phase one. And so the first study was called Leveraging Community Cultural Wealth to Bridge the Divide Between Culturally and Linguistically Diverse Learners and Physical Therapy Culture. Basically, the study was trying to say, okay, here's a group of people that the profession and the workforce isn't serving well. We're going to try to operationalize a definition for this group of people, identify some barriers to success, and then try to figure out how we can address each of those barriers. And one of the barriers we um, wanted to address was the issue of student retention in physical therapy programs when they identify as a member of this group. 
And what the first branch of addressing this was going through the faculty perspective and gaining their insight. And so that's really what phase one of the study was looking at. It was a case control study of looking at um, the faculty perspective and working with these types of students. And that really led to phase two. Phase two really focused on the students. So we know that for anyone, higher education isn't really easy, uh, particularly graduate school. We're seeing like, all right, well, everyone has a hard time, but uh, some of the prior research and like phase one showed that students, particularly students who are in uh, ethnic and racial minority groups, potentially have a harder time and uh, also offered something different going forward into as they you know graduate and go into the profession. However, we don't really have good research on these outcomes yet. We don't know who ends up serving the most underserved populations in the United States. Um, so this phase two study really hopes to shed a little bit of light on, all right, so if we know that you know students of racial and ethnic minority, if they have a potential to serve underserved populations in the future, what drives them, what brings them there? And potentially after the research, how can we better support them to this process of graduate school? The second study focused on the experience of these students. What do you have issues with? What are barriers that you face? How do you overcome these barriers? Research is typically very, very broadly qualitative or quantitative. This definitely falls into the qualitative side as well. So important because even without having like stats at hand, you just know that there have been students who have probably dropped out of these programs because of barriers that are specific to them. And it's just like anything that we could potentially do as faculty or fellow students or even staff. I want to know what that is so that we can prevent that in the future. Thank you so much for undertaking this study so that we will hopefully get some good answers. Justin and Lauren, thank you so much for being here and talking about your study. Um, I was curious, were you familiar with qualitative research methods before this project? And has your opinion of them changed in any way since? I think that for me, my previous research experience had been a little bit more quantitative. However, I knew that it was possible to conduct salient, interesting, yet scientific qualitative research because of my love for Brene Brown. She does a lot of shame and vulnerability research, and she is a very excellent qualitative researcher. And so one of the things that I hope to do with speaking with this group and advocating for um, research professions and saying research doesn't have to be boring and that the outcomes are meaningful. What we determined from the study through this qualitative research does matter. And then on the other side of that spectrum saying, oh, if we're talking about hard data and science, which with the PT profession, it's kind of the great opportunity because we say it's an art and a science and delivering high quality PT care. We can have that evidence-based, qualitative, hard science-driven component of research. And so that's really what I was looking for to base my foundation of research on as I moved throughout my career is how can I find the best of both worlds? And so while I hadn't had a lot of experience about it, I knew it could be done and I was really excited about it. You know, Lauren, I think you brought up a really good point about PT is like really, you know, a, a beautiful blend of art and science. Uh, if if the way I like to see it is um, if it was all about quantitative things. If it was all about the hard science, then we'd really be operating on like pure protocols on like a certain subset of in the PT profession, like exercises and things to do. Um, however, like why the quality of part is so important is because it, it gives purpose. It gives essence to what you're doing. That's why we tailor specific exercises to really fit the needs of the patient. And likewise, that's what it is like with qualitative research. It gives a little purpose and a little bit of drive to say, hey, this is what we've found and this is why. This really constitutes the why. The quantitative research really gives us palpable ways to do it, to kind of measure it out. But the qualitative research puts some color into the picture. What were the biggest takeaways um, from the findings from the study and how have these results informed your future clinical practice? One of the reasons why I was so intrigued when I first uh, was brought on to study, unlike Lauren, I only joined in phase two uh, upon starting my residency. And um, <laughs> it was actually Kashi who reached out to me saying, I think during my interview, I, I talked a little bit about like how I was very passionate about serving like underserved populations and how I saw residency as a bridge for me getting there. 
And uh, Keshe ended up reaching out to me pretty early on in the residency saying, hey, like, hey, we have an opportunity that we'd love to bring you on to this uh, research study. Just a year ago, uh, I was in, you know, I was in the student's perspective. I was in a physical therapy program and looking at like the, the inclusion criteria, I definitely qualified to be a part of this study. I really resonate with like the findings of, of our study. I felt pretty much every single thing that was listed in our results and uh, how that informs me. Some of the takeaways was there are a lot of unique barriers that students, especially we, we use the term culturally and linguistically diverse learners for this uh, study. And I think that's really important to highlight because we wanted to really see how these students uh, will eventually blossom into working physical therapists uh, and how they can serve using their their unique racial, ethnic, cultural gifts. A lot of them feel, felt like they were kind of in the middle. They didn't feel like they truly fit into the majority culture. They didn't feel very comfortable the, the way that a lot of their white majority uh, peers felt like. I, I definitely resonate with that. I felt like I was like this in-between. I identify as uh, Chinese-American. And I never really felt like I was Chinese, nor did I really feel like I was like, you know, a full American for some reason. And that definitely translated uh, when I was in grad school. And as a result, it shows us that along with phase one, that there is a strong need to support these students. There's a strong need to provide resources for them to actually feel like you're cared about, you're seen, and, uh, and you have something to offer. We don't want to just capitalize on it, but we really want to grow the gifts you have. So for me, that really translates to mentorship in the future. As a physical therapist, as someone who's, you know, done with school, uh, I really want to take stronger mentorship roles, whether that's the form of becoming a clinical instructor, whether that's literally just offering mentorship. There are actually avenues that I don't think a lot of new grads know about in uh, seeking mentorship. And potentially maybe even getting into some further, more academic-based roles in the future uh, to whatever capacity. Anything to really support students who we don't know much about their future yet. Justin and I have actually talked about this quite a bit in our time working about this together. Um, kind of like reflection in action, reflection following action to shout out to Keshri for really driving those terms into our brains. Um, during residency. But just to summarize some of the findings for people who may not be as familiar with our study, basically from the student perspective, we did a bunch of focus groups virtually, which was challenging in itself, and then try to identify themes and um, match them to some theoretical frameworks, which we had investigated in the literature. And basically the higher education experience that these learners who we have termed culturally and linguistically diverse learners they have qualities that contrast those of the majority culture. I'm going to pause there because I think what Justin was speaking to is really, really important. We have to remember that this term majority culture is a polite way of saying that like white supremacy is at the culture. Whiteness is the norm and anything else is a deviation from that norm. Now, unlike Justin, I am part of that community and that culture where I didn't see or talk about whiteness until I was in college but I realized about when I was a sophomore in college, um, when I was in South Africa and forcing to do some racial reckoning of my own, that I was paralyzed by guilt because like, oh my gosh, am I contributing to this? And it goes back to this theory of being an anti-racist. You are either anti-racist or racist. There is no neutral here. And so that drove me to say, okay, how can I participate in research that is going to not um, necessarily fix what's been done, but change it fundamentally. And in order to do that, we have to have a healthcare workforce that looks like our population. Part of the barriers to doing that is we cannot keep students that represent um, true U.S. population in school. And so in order for them to stay in school, these students are forced to use strategies from their communities that may or may not be successful for them because these spaces weren't built for them. And so part of what I want to do is I want to continue to challenge how we're building these spaces and make them better. Sometimes that means I'm not at the table. Sometimes that means giving up my spot for someone to better represent the workforce and really just share a little bit more. But for right now, this is what it looks like. And I'm really excited for people to build on the research that we've done 
and change the culture between phase one and phase two. We've talked about this PT culture, but it's really defined by the voices that aren't heard, in my opinion, and what I experienced in PT school and then um, as a physical therapist as well. What we have found consistently time and time again is that these learners, these CLD learners, do better when they have a learning community. My big takeaway is how can I make my practice, my workplace, the students that I teach to take that really to heart and build a learning community that serves um, as many people as possible. It looks a little different for everyone. Again, that's that mix of like qualitative, quantitative. How can we match what the person needs instead of telling them what the person needs? But I took that into my clinical practice because from a patient care perspective, how do my patients who would fall into this category, may not look like me, may not talk like me, feel about me as their provider? How do I provide more culturally competent care and develop a therapeutic alliance? How do I educate appropriately? I was really lucky that was something I was paying attention to early on, uh, just kind of fell into it. And it was a strength that I went into with residency that I only like developed more and still developing where the learning always continues. But recently where it's continued the most for me is where I have transitioned from in such a short amount of time from student to resident to uh, full-time independent provider to CI. I just finished my first student. I was really, really on top of it in terms of trying to be aware of my own CI bias and making sure that we were paying attention to what does culturally competent care look like and how can we make sure that, again, we are fostering a learning community that is an inclusive space. And so moving forward, what I'm hoping for, I know this is a little long-winded, I apologize, I'm just really passionate about it, um, is that we're talking about culture, we're talking about theoretical frameworks, none of that matters if the culture is not continually redefined to better serve the needs of the population, the patient population, but the provider population as well, so that it is inclusive and therefore much more effective. As Justin, as you were saying, you felt you you yourself felt validated by what you found in the study. I think that so many other students are going to feel the same way if they do get to see the results of the study or hear about it, hopefully on this podcast. Um, and Lauren, I'm really glad you brought up the white supremacy anti-racist aspect because I, I what I've noticed in the past year since sort of the racial reckoning of summer 2020 is that academia has, you know, It's moving slowly, but it's getting more interested in anti-racism aspect of research. And so I think hopefully we're going to see a lot more. Of course, this type of research was always happening, um, maybe not getting as much attention as other types of research. But hopefully we're going to start to see everybody start to incorporate uh, anti-racist views or perspectives into the research that they're doing. Uh, so you've both have talked about Keshri a little bit. You've both mentioned her. I was hoping you could talk a little bit about your faculty collaborators and what it was like to work with them. Huge shout out to Keshri. Um, I think oftentimes as new clinicians, new researchers, we're constantly scrambling for opportunities. And when people hit dead ends, that really also pours a little water on the fuse but Kashri uh, really intentionally reached out once she heard, like, you know, Lauren and I really didn't ask for these things. We just kind of mentioned about how it, we were, like, passionate about it. And she, in turn, saw that she was in a place to, you know, provide opportunity. And that's exactly what she did. So huge shout out to Kashri. Um, and the rest of the team, Chris and Laura, extremely supportive. Uh, I think for me, this is my first time really participating in any type of formal research. Uh, I was pretty nervous. There's almost like a, I don't know how to describe it, maybe like an imposter syndrome type of, of feeling to it, but they really were supportive and made me feel like I was like an equal, a part of a team. And uh, also put it outright that this was a learning opportunity for me. They gave me appropriate amounts of responsibility, I think, and I've learned a ton from it. It wasn't too overloaded, but definitely challenged. And uh, I think most importantly, I did feel like I was heard and I did feel like I was valued as part of the team. You know, hence why Lauren and I are here today and not, you know, the other three uh, is, is another example of that. They trusted us to present some of these things, to present the findings, uh, even if we weren't the primary, you know, data collectors or um, if we didn't write certain parts of it, they felt like 
they trusted us to adequately represent the team and represent uh, ultimately the research that we did. I think that one of my favorite parts of this project is having known Chris and um, Laura when I was lab instructing at IHP. I, um, as part of the residency, you lab instruct in the orthopedics lab. Um, and then through COVID, I was lab instructing a little bit more um, than I needed to. It was so much fun to see them interact with this. And then obviously I was with Keshery all the time. Just knowing these people as individuals made the work they do just so much more important to me because they had so many other things going on. They still prioritized this and they still prioritized us in that. And so it's just a reminder that people who do this type of research are just generally really, really good people. And it makes you more motivated to be part of that project. One of the less glamorous parts of paper submissions is that you have to go through so many drafts and revisions of it. And just when you feel like you have the story that you want to tell done, wrapped in a bow, you submit it and something happens, you have to change it again. And never was there resentment or bitterness about it. It was like, okay, let's move forward. Okay, let's move forward. And the inherent resilience of this particular group of educators made me really grateful to be part of the team and to be valued as a member of the team. So if they ask us to join for phase three, um, I've joked with Justin, it's like, wow, like this, this has become so much more than a residency project for me, but like, of course I'm going to do it. This group of people really brings the research to life and they practice what they preach. We see like from the faculty perspective, they are trying to live out their research because it is that important to them. So that's really cool to see and something I hope to embody in myself. You guys have both kind of highlighted how research can really be used as a tool for advocacy and for social justice. For our audience, I was wondering if you could talk a little more about this concept of reflection and action and how, you know, our audience can continue this conversation and keep learning and advocating for culturally and linguistically diverse students. Reflection in action, while I had really come to adopt it during residency is something that maybe a lot of us do um, inherently and just haven't had a formal term for it. But basically it's a feed forward loop where you do something and in that moment, you're thinking about the impact of that action or that thought or that word that you said. And then you are changing your course of action based on that reflection. So rather than doing a bunch of things and then sitting down to think about it, it's how does one step inform the next step? And I think that's really important right now in this very tenuous world we're living in, because it means that what you do and say matters. As we think about our clinical practice as PTs, as we think about the research and we think about the implications of some of these more abstract constructs, like what is anti-racism, what is white supremacy, it can be a little tough and paralyzing because you're so afraid that you're going to take a misstep that you don't do anything. I've been there. Sometimes I'm still there. I think the important part of this concept is that it's about growth. And growth is really uncomfortable. And so for me, one of the things that is uncomfortable about this type of research is that sometimes the people that I am comfortable with or the things that I'm comfortable with are the problem. When I have to do that reflection, say, okay, how can I learn from this? And then take another step forward so that I don't make the same mistake or that I make a patient a little bit better. It means that sometimes the problem is me and sometimes it's the problem system that I'm operating in. And so when you think about how can my daily actions or the sum of my actions and thoughts translate to social justice, which I think is the crux of your question, it means that it's going to be uncomfortable and it means it's going to require some thinking. And some of my friends will tell you that um, my joke tagline is Lauren has a lot of thoughts about a lot of things. And sometimes that's a little overwhelming but it means that you have to have conversations. It means that you have to take a step back, even in the moment, take a deep breath and say, I'm not perfect. I'm not trying to be right. I'm trying to get it right. And so that does mean sometimes you do take a misstep. Sometimes you take two steps forward and one step back. And sometimes you inadvertently hurt somebody. But the important part is that you are thinking about it. You are thinking about the consequences of your actions and you are trying to take a step forward together. And my hope is that by taking a step forward together with this research, we are creating a more inclusive space 
with my clinical practice, I am making and building a more inclusive space for healing, really building resiliency in my patients, especially in these trying times. And if we can do that as providers and as educators and as humans supporting other humans, whether it's in PT programs or other allied health professions, or even just as one person on another person on the street, we are taking those steps forward together, knowing that part of the process is thinking about what we're doing and feeling all of the feelings involved with that, whether that's shame, whether that's um, being uncomfortable or whether it's pride and that what we're doing is a hard thing and it's a good thing. So I think Lauren, that you've addressed one thing that we did want to ask about, which was what was kind of the biggest challenge for you while working on this project? Uh, Justin, what would you say was your biggest challenge while doing this research study? I, I mentioned it a little bit before, but uh, being a new researcher and even really a new clinician, I felt very uncomfortable because, you know, my prior experience was none really. Um, so the biggest challenge was me feeling like I had something to bring to the table and feeling even like competent, not even like excellent. And that required a lot of reading, a lot of like, you know, catching up and uh, making informed decisions. That's why I said it's. It was. I found it so valuable that the rest of the team was super supportive. Uh, Lauren was, you know, Lauren and I met, and uh, just to make sure we were on the same page. And I appreciated whenever she asked me, like, "Oh, how are you doing? Like, how's the rest of residency going? Like, how are you managing with all of it?" It ultimately was a great learning experience. But as Lauren said before, like, you know, growth is uncomfortable, and if you feel like you're cruising through things and things are just coming easy to you, there's a better chance than not that you're probably not being formed, being shaped, you know, growing. I think the biggest challenge to answer more directly was uh, not knowing and not feeling great, but being okay with it and, you know, utilizing the resources that I had around me to bridge that gap. And it really does go back to the research, doesn't it? Of like, sometimes these uh, students, they don't really truly can put words to uh, the hardships that they're going through until someone asks them like, you know, specific questions or until they're uh, given the time and space to really reflect upon themselves and how they're doing. From that reflection, you get answers such as the ones that we found in our research. And I think that's really the key to it all is like, are you taking that step back, that time to reflect and uh, taking a pulse on yourself and saying, hey, how am I doing? What are the areas that I need to work on? What are the areas that I'm doing well? And give yourself credit for that as well. So grateful for the residency and giving me, you know, really emphasizing that, not really doing just what, what can you do better? What, you know, what did you do poorly? But also what did you do well? And how can we, you know, elevate everything to becoming better? I really like that phrase, growth is uncomfortable. And it sounds like something that not only fits here, but sort of fits with PT in general. Like if you're someone who's going for PT, that is a phrase that's going to come up at some point. So I just, I'm really seeing how this, your research is relating to the more clinical aspect of what you do. There's definitely a tie there. And that's maybe one of the, one of them. You know, I definitely think there's a tie, uh, to a lot of different areas and ways that this, you know, research can be interpreted. I think it's so powerful. I can see it, you know, these themes for these students, how, you know, as a student at the IHP, how I can take these things into consideration to faculty and how they can consider these themes in constructing their classes and in teaching um, all the way up to administration and how they can really, um, you know, make sure they're providing supports to all the students and then translating that too to clinical mentorship. I really love that you mentioned that as well, because I think that that's something I hadn't really uh, previously thought about and how that's another really a way to consider that in the future, how I, as I enter a healthcare field, how I can also be considering these things as I hopefully will mentor people someday. So kind of a logistics question for students who may be starting their own residency in the fall and wanna hop on a research project. And I think Justin alluded to this a little bit too. How did you manage the demands of this residency program while also working on a research project at the same time? We knew that residency was going to be busy. We, we signed up for a tough time. Absolutely. It self-selects a very particular group of people is what we have found. But 
early on, I was like, okay, I have all of these buckets and I need to make sure that every so often I'm just contributing to one bucket or another. And Justin will tell you too, that my process might be a little different. I think I sent him like a punch of files that maybe were overwhelming to look at at one point um, because I had been adding to them for like a year um, and was had built something from scratch and then was also working on some stuff from Cashery. And so that, that's kind of my process is like, okay, I'm doing this and then I'm doing this, lots of lists, but making sure that I'm circling back and kind of making sure that nothing has gone untouched for too long and things were going okay. And then COVID happened. And so we, I was redeployed a couple of times, but I, um, at one point found myself with a lot of time to kill. And so it was a great opportunity to dive into the research and really do the nitty gritty reading that Justin was talking about. It's really important that if you are going to be tasked with the background is in significance as we were, that we are making sure that we have a really thorough understanding of what's out there and most importantly, what's not out there so that we can tell a really powerful story with our data. I spent a lot of time reading articles and organizing articles and trying to convey how I had organized those articles. Um, and once I had a framework down, I was able to balance everything a little bit more. A piece of advice I would have to people who are stumbling upon this type of research or any type of research for the first time is meet with your PI and don't be afraid to advocate for some very clear definitions. So for me, in the beginning, one thing that was really important was how are we aligning ourselves in um, who we're basing the research off of? So what I mean by that is one of the questions we had to um, answer early was when we do this research, are we looking at allied health or are we looking at medicine? PT is a doctoring profession. We have been since 2006 and in the making long before that. But we didn't align with physicians in terms of how the model of care and our role in the care team. So we tried to answer our research questions in the allied health literature. And that was really tough in our PT identity crisis. But I think it paid off well because there's such a robust allied health literature, especially in nursing, where we were able to identify some operational definitions, which is really important when you feel like imposter syndrome, new to the project, not the PI and have no clue what you're doing. It's really important that you're saying, okay, this is what we mean by CLD learners. This is what we mean by success, which in our case was not only graduation and degree attainment, but passing the board's exam, the MPTE. And this is what we're looking for in terms of barriers. Once you have a really firm foundation, you can kind of go and you have to trust yourself that you're doing the right things. And for me, it was helpful. Like every couple of months, I was checking in with our PI cashier and saying like, hey, are, am I on the right track? Yes, no, let's do a temperature check. That was really helpful for me and my process and balancing it and making sure that I wasn't spending too much time or not enough time on the important parts. I, again, was brought onto the project a little later than Lauren. I had so much catching up to do. Uh, it took me quite a bit of time to work through, you know, the, the we have a shared Dropbox uh, and Lauren, uh, she's very organized. I think maybe that's the first piece of advice is like being organized, being well-filed, well-labeled and um, having consistency with, you know, all your files. But the second part of it is um, your own organization. Uh, and that comes in a lot of different ways. I know a lot of people really have a hard time reading on screens and whatnot. And I, I guess this isn't really great advice, but um, sometimes it makes things really a lot easier when you have your notes and your highlights on something that is searchable. For me, I use, you know, a web-based or um, a computer-based database to store all my research on all the articles I read. Everything's like stored in the cloud so I can access it whenever I want. So if I find myself with a quick moment to just, you know, sitting, I don't know, at, waiting for some appointment, I have like 30 minutes to kill. I was like, all right, maybe I can just take down, you know, half a paper right now. You know, finding those small spots instead of scrolling down through social media and wasting time. Uh, but filling it with, you know, slightly, slightly, slightly more meaningful, <laughs> um, you know, yeah, filling that time up a little bit better. Uh, but also organizing your research collection. I use Mendeley. That has been super crucial to me because I can prioritize things. I can make notes to myself, make notes directly into like the PDF and access it whenever I want. I'm not constantly flipping through. And it literally turns out to be thousands of pages of article sheets. I'm not flipping through those because, you know, I have like search functions and that's where, that's why technology is beautiful. The other thing for, especially for residents is time management. Like there are 
deadlines all over the place, whether it's weekly, monthly, and also sometimes in the in the orthopedic residency, it's like within the week you have deadlines as well. It's really time management and understanding that like you can't just address the things that come first, although that is, yes, that is crucial. But don't forget about your deadline that is, say, we had to get a draft in two months from now. Definitely shouldn't wait until two weeks before then. That's just simply not enough time. The much better strategy would be to start reading, start doing some of the legwork months, like as soon as you can in advance. Because if you just take down, like, say, an article a week, even half an article a week in the very beginning stages, like you're much caught up and much better suited to contribute to the writing of the paper, the discussions that happen going into submissions of the paper. Yeah. Time management organization. I mean, I'm sure everyone and their dog knows it, but it's it's really the answer. People know it, but it is one of those things that's like tough to execute if until you yeah. figure out exactly how how to make it work for you. So Justin and Lauren, if you had unlimited resources, unlimited possibilities, what would your dream or ideal research study be? So <laughs> Lauren and I are smiling because I think it's a very loaded question. I think there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of um, passions that we both have uh, individually. I think we're always interested in solving the big ticket items, right? The big issues, like how can we become, you know, a more inclusive society? Like I want to do research that where every, like that leads to everyone feeling included and having a place at the table. But I think if I were to be real with myself and really think about the question and my strengths personally, I personally would really want to identify like pretty much the question that this that um, this phase two study sought to at least be a stepping stone for is like, who ends up serving the ones who are least heard? Who ends up like being the people that these underserved populations talk to? And how did they get there? In other words, like this research project was, you know, pretty much it or along those lines. I have a deep fondness for serving, uh, older adults, especially in the Chinese speaking population, just because I, I speak Cantonese and I grew up you know, in a community surrounded by Cantonese speaking elders and uh, older adults. They have a special place in my heart in which uh, I, I led a little bit of, a, of an exercise program in the, the Greater Boston Chinese Golden Age Center. Uh, they have like a location in Chinatown. And during my third year of physical therapy school, I volunteered there and uh, I did a little bit of a, ex a progressive exercise program for the geared towards fall prevention, but really just to promote physical activity. And people will be surprised of like how little sometimes uh, people who don't speak English know about how things work in America. If we think about health literacy, for example, like all of us here, we, you know, we can speak English quite fluently. We can read English, no problem. And it's still so hard to understand exactly how insurance works and just the ways of, this, of, the, of the world of this country, right? Even like think about the election process and how can that be a pain sometimes to figure out. Think about it now if you are unable to read, unable to speak and not know really who to ask. Those are the people who are least heard because there's literally a gap. And I'm interested in understanding who ends up being the person in front of them, fielding their questions, helping them. And how can we, you know, just promote the well-being of that person? Lauren, did you also, do you have research dreams of your own that you would um, <laughs> fulfill if you had no limit on budget or time? Yeah, and I think that's why Justin and I were laughing is because I've talked a little bit about it. I have um, a lot of lived experience with certain populations for someone in my career, and that is specifically people experiencing homelessness. When I was a student in Milwaukee, I ran a meal program on the north side of Milwaukee for three years and have found my way to continuing to work with this population on and off for the last nine years. And it is a population that I'm really passionate about because PT is not often included in the standard of care for people experiencing homelessness. Part of that is makes sense because we have had an identity crisis in um, the last 20 years and it 
what is PT? How do we define ourselves? What is the movement system? Totally understand. But I think at the end of the day, what we are, we're doctors of movement. We help people move a little bit better. We optimize the ways they navigate the world, whether that is going up and down the stairs into the shelter, whether you rest your head on a park bench at night or during the day because you are not comfortable sleeping in a space where people tell you what to do minute by minute, or you do not have the luxury of leaving your job at 3 p.m. to get a lottery ticket for the shelter that night. What can we do to provide a little bit more comfort, a little bit more quality care for the whole person? That's really what I would like to change. And so if I had unlimited time or resources, or even if I, the right time in my career, not even unlimited time or resources, I would like to really continue my clinical care work with specific organizations that I have volunteered with, where right now it's just not the right time for them to take on this project I've asked. And I think I'll circle back one day, but try to see, okay, you have this population. We have this skill set. What are some data-based outcome measures we can use to capture function at the beginning? do a prolonged PT intervention, and then use those same outcomes measures to capture change. Did the patients get better? If so, let's make this part of the standard of care. One of the ideas I had was triaging a very specific patient population at a very specific setting. Patients with chronic low back pain, for instance, who are at increased risk for falls, whether because of drug dependency, lack of nutritional support, polysubstance use, and the long-term consequences of that, or post-COVID syndrome. And then do some PT just to say, okay, you're using your cane in your left hand, your left hip hurts. Let's switch it to the right because that's a better way to use your cane. Do they walk better? Do they have less pain? Are they moving a little bit better? Can they now go to work? Things like that. How can we capture meaningful outcomes and then try to integrate PT into what we think about when we think about treating um, persons experiencing homelessness, not just medical management not just um, safety and security in terms of physical housing support or footwear, but helping them move in a way that allows them to get enjoyment from their daily activities and improve their quality of care. So that would be my, that will be, I should say, my ideal research study is to try to, again, think about how are we using our resources to make everyone move and experience life a little bit better. I know we've only known each other for an hour, but I feel like the two of you are people that like, I just know in my gut that you're going to go out there and change the world. And so you already have a little bit, but I feel like this is only the beginning. Like I just get that feeling that the passion is just really coming through. And I, and I'm, I love that. Um, all right. So let's end on a fun question. So if you were going to make a playlist for your research study or soundtrack to your research study, what are three songs that would be on it? I was joking with Justin earlier this week that I was a little stressed about this question. If you're familiar with the musical Hamilton, the song nonstop I had on repeat at one point this summer when I was editing and re-editing and revising part of the significance. So when I think of this research study, I think of Alexander Hamilton and songs that are from that musical, which I think he would smile down on like that combination of fighting for the underdog and fighting for people whose voices haven't been heard, education and writing and writing and writing. I feel like he would really support that. Yeah. So I got, I got two songs on my mind that I'm thinking about. Uh, The first one is uh, Ordinary People by John Legend. So (laughs) I love that song. I know it's a love song. It's supposed to be a love song, Uh, but that's kind of what it is. Like when you're passionate about something, you're in love with it. For anyone who's been in a relationship, it doesn't always go smooth. And you always want to like, I want to, I want to hit the things that I set out to do and whatnot. So uh, I love the song because it's like one of the lines is like, so we'll take it slow, right? And sometimes that's what you need, right? Sometimes you just need to slow down the pace and like sit back, reflect, and just enjoy what you're doing and not feel the overwhelming like burden of what you of like all the, the, the massive checklists you have in front of you, but, you know, take it slow and uh, appreciate the, the place that you're in at that current moment. Appreciate all the things that have brought you there and all the things that are to come. Uh, the second song I have is, um, it, it's by a, a slightly lesser known artist. Uh, they're called Us The Duo. They, they, they have a song called Better Together. And I mean, just the title says it all, like we're all better together. We're all uh, better when we have more voices. And even though there are logistic problems, like things don't go the way that, you know, you first envision it to be, there are more, there's more pushing and pulling at the end of the day, it is better. 
that there are more people and voices at the table and to have value in community. It goes back to the research project all over again. One of our theoretical frameworks in, in, the, in the research project was like community cultural wealth. How can students, CLD learners, like leverage what they have learned and experienced in their home communities and bring it to physical th- the physical therapy profession? better together. We're all better together. Uh, People have learned, you know, things in their past and from what they've learned, they can bring it to their experiences to, you know, future endeavors. Give that song a listen to. I could not have asked for a better note to end this interview on. Thank you so much, both of you for coming and speaking with us today. Thank you so much. It was absolutely a pleasure just, you know, being able to chat and talk about it um still but obviously still a lot to learn still a lot of experience to be gained but uh this was an awesome experience for sure yeah thanks guys it was really fun it's like as justin was saying like sometimes it's nice to reflect on the things that have gone really well and um to be a part of a project like this and to have people who also feel as um strongly about it as we are is just such an unexpected surprise and really grateful for that Rachel, talking to Lauren and Justin sparked my curiosity about anti-racism in research, particularly how researchers can be anti-racist in their research practices. I thought our listeners might also be curious about it after hearing Justin and Lauren speak. So let's talk a little bit more about that. Of course, there is an entire field of anti-racism scholarship where the research is specifically dedicated to exploring and solving the problems of racial inequity and injustice. Then there are areas within other research fields, such as STEM, that have anti-racist aspects. So, for example, I think of folks who are researching health inequities, which often looks at structural racism and how factors like socioeconomic status, education level, and even one zip code that have been shaped by decades of racial discrimination and racist government policies can impact health outcomes. Right. And we see these inequities really explicitly, specifically in Boston, life expectancy in Roxbury, which is a predominantly Black neighborhood, is approximately 60 years, while in Back Bay, a predominantly white neighborhood, life expectancy is 90 years. And the segregation of these neighborhoods can be traced all the way back to intentional redlining that occurred in Boston starting in the 1930s. Exactly. And ultimately, these inequities really permeate throughout our entire healthcare system. I I loved how Justin and Lauren noted and explained how important this research is. Not only does it, of course, directly affect our students, our culturally and linguistically diverse students who are colleagues, but it also ripples out to the broader community. A lot of this has made me think about how I really didn't learn about a lot of these things when I was younger. I wasn't taught that these issues still existed. I was taught that in a lot of ways, racism ended. And as I've gotten older, obviously, I've learned that that's very uh, false. And it's just, it's, it's been really important to continue educating myself and learning about how there are so many issues within the healthcare system that have been there from the beginning. And it can be disheartening and a bit overwhelming as someone who's entering healthcare, but it also really highlights that in order to stop perpetuating these things, we have to keep talking about them. We have to keep bringing attention to them. So true. Very well said. I absolutely can relate to the experience of learning a very reductive version of American history. And then much later, um, you know, reading Howard Zinn's People's History of the United States and just realizing that, you know, everything I was taught was not accurate and that these problems have not gone away as much as people would like to sweep them under the rug. So thank you for sharing that. For researchers who want to stop perpetuating the problem, even if their research doesn't seem directly anti-racist in nature, you know, I was curious what sort of practices can they apply to their work? So to answer that question, I used my librarian superpowers and I found a fantastic article called 10 Simple Rules for Building an Anti-Racist Lab. This was written by V. Balachaudry and Asmarit Asifa Berhe, 
which was published in Public Library of Science Computational Biology in October 2020. I won't read all 10 of the rules. I encourage our listeners to check out the full open access paper for all of the their ideas. Um, and we'll link to that in the show notes. But I will share a few so that people can get a sense of their recommendations um, and how being an anti-racist researcher can actually be very practical. All right. Ready, Rachel? Yes. Rule number one is lead informed discussions about anti-racism in your lab regularly. So as the authors write, leading regular discussions on race informed by scholarly readings signals to lab members, Black, Indigenous, people of color, and white, that racial discrimination is not tolerated and that silence is implicit acceptance of racism. Rule number two is address racism in your lab and field safety guidelines. The authors also say lab and field safety guidelines should be written with the recognition that some lab members require additional supports to safely conduct their work. Ask BIPOC lab members what you can do to facilitate their safety on campus and in the fields. Rule number three, and this is my favorite one, publish papers and write grants with BIPOC colleagues. The authors say that the most important thing anyone can do to improve the success and retention of BIPOC folks in STEM is to provide opportunities for collaborations that lead to publications and grants. So the paper goes into much greater detail on these three rules, as well as seven more. And the authors also provide suggestions for implementation. So again, I encourage our our listeners who do research, especially principal investigators and lab managers, to go to the link in the show notes and read it immediately. I don't work in a lab, but it gave me so many ideas for what we can do at the Bellic Library to implement anti-racist practices in our work and our space. Amanda, thank you so much for sharing all those ideas and for encouraging our listeners to keep this conversation going. Rachel, thanks for talking this out with me. And thank you, listener, for joining us for this episode of Evidence-Based IHP. There are many more episodes to come in season one. Make sure to subscribe so that you don't miss any. Ask us your question, send us your feedback, or pitch an episode by emailing us at podcast at mghihp.edu. Evidence-Based IHP is presented by the Janice P. Bellick Library at the MGH Institute of Health Professions. It is hosted by Amanda Tarbett and Rachel Norton. Our incredible executive producer is Selena Craig. Our amazing production assistant for this episode is Kimberly Ames. We'd like to say a special thanks to George Sanchez de Lozada and MGH IHP's Office of Information Technology for their technical and financial support of this project. Check the show notes for links to learn more about MGH IHP and follow us on social media.